good to see you all here. Am I mic, in fact? A triumph of hope over experience. We are using the Rotunda's amplification system rather than our own. So uh, if you can't hear in the back of the room when Marie is speaking, if you'd raise your hand and she'll snuggle up to the mic a bit more. Welcome to week four of Rare Book School 2001. Our speaker this evening, Marie Corey, is a very old friend indeed. I was trying to work that out. It's more than 30 years, I think, at this point since I came down to the library company in Philadelphia where Marie uh, was already uh, in a senior position working for Edwin Wolf. She up and went to Canada having married Richard Landon, the director of the Thomas Fisher Library at the University of Toronto, and no stranger to this podium, where she has made remarkable progress in the Massey College collections, which have a strong book arts interest. It's a great pleasure to welcome Marie Corey tonight to talk about Massey College and its collections. Thank you, Jerry. Can everyone hear me? If I slip down, I've just been getting over a sore throat, so if I slip down, just raise your hands and you know, wave at me a bit. I think it would be useful to give you a bit of a back, bit of background about Massey College to provide a context for the library and its collections. But before I do that, I want to say how pleased I am to be giving this lecture during a week when Sue and Greer Allen are, are teaching and Michael Twyman is teaching, because the collections that I'm going to talk about relate quite closely to aspects of the courses that they offer. I suspect some of my remarks will have a bearing on matters that Don Crummel covers as well in his course. I'm afraid that uh, archival encoding has, is something I have yet to, uh, to master, so I can't relate my remarks to that. So I'll start off with the setting of Massey College. Massey College is an independent residential college for graduate students pursuing a master's or doctoral degree in any of the programs offered by the University of Toronto. The college was conceived in the late 1950s in those heady days of expansion for post-secondary education and was opened in 1963. The principal mover in this project was Vincent Massey, a statesman, cultural advocate, philanthropist, and member of Toronto's elite. The family fortune had been made by Vincent's grandfather, Hart Massey, under whose direction in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the Massey Manufacturing Company became the leading manufacturer of agricultural machinery in the British Empire. Through a series of mergers, it became known as Massey Harris and later Massey Ferguson. The legacy left by Hart Massey was converted into a private foundation overseen by Vincent Massey and other members of the Massey family as trustees. Neither Vincent or his brother Raymond had much involvement with the business operations of the company. Raymond went south of the border, that's the Canadian-US border, to pursue an acting career on stage, screen, and television. While Vincent Massey served his country in a variety of capacities, he was the Canadian High Commissioner in London during World War II. Following the war, 
he headed the Royal Commission on National Development in the Arts, Letters and Sciences, which set the agenda for Canadian cultural policies in the second half of the 20th century. He had been Chancellor of the University of Toronto and was a member of its Board of Governors. But the epitome of his career came in 1952 when he was appointed the first Canadian-born Governor-General, the official representative of the Queen in Canada. The significance of the occasion was greeted by others in a less than reverential manner as the following verse by B.K. Sandwell on the appointment of Governor-General Vincent Massey shows. Let the old world, where ranks yet vital, part those who have and have not title. Toronto has no social classes, only the Masseys and the Masses. <laughs> Vincent Massey's year in great, years in Great Britain, particularly two years spent at Balliol, had an influence on his vision for the residential college he proposed to give to the University of Toronto. He drew upon the model of All Souls, as well as Balliol, in refining his ideas, which allowed later critics of the college to refer to it as instant Balliol, or half-souls. The institution, as he envisioned it, would provide students pursuing graduate education, fitting living accommodation, and a sense of their common purpose and responsibilities which, by reason of their advanced work, will rest upon them. By necessity, the facility would be small and select, limited to a few men of special prominence. Claude Bissell, who was then president of the University of Toronto and later went on to write the official biography of Vincent Massey, commented on this. A residential college, it was assumed, must be con confined to one sex. And Vincent never had any doubt about which sex should have priority. The college, as planned, was to have 60 resident junior fellows, as the graduate students were called, and about 40 non-resident junior fellows. In the early years of the college, in the years when it was all male, the non-resident junior fellows had to be married. I'm not sure why this regulation was there, but they had to be married. So they could have a carol at the college, they could be a part of the college's life, but they weren't living in residence. It was not until 1974 that women were elected to fellowship of Massey College, and then only at the instance of the junior fellows themselves. The agreement that was reached in January of 1961 between the University of Toronto and the Massey Foundation is a complex one. The university provided the site for the new building and continues to maintain the fabric of the building and supply the services, including heat, electricity, and water. The Massey Foundation provided the funds to build and furnish the college. Following the death of Vincent Massey in 1968, the Massey Foundation also turned over a substantial subvention to the college, which became the basis of its endowment, although there was no promise of this in 1961. The governing body of the college is made up of 25 senior fellows who are members of the university's academic community and or laymen with an interest in higher education. The president of the University of Toronto and the dean of the School of Graduate Studies are ex officio members of the college corporation, as are two representatives of the Massey Foundation. The first master of the college was selected jointly by the university and the foundation, but his successors have been appointed by the senior fellows, subject, of course, to the approval of the university.
we have had one female master. A position of college visitor who fulfilled important constitutional and ceremonial functions for the college was established with Vincent Massey as its first incumbent. Once these details had been sorted out between the university and the Massey Foundation, the college was established as a private corporation by an act of the Ontario Provincial Parliament. Technically, we are in, but not of, the University of Toronto. The choice's first master was Robertson Davies, whom Massey had known from his days at Balliol. Their friendship continued on this side of the Atlantic as they shared common interests in cultural and other matters. At the time, Davies was publisher and editor of the Peterborough Examiner. He had established a reputation as a literary figure, having produced several plays, the witty and satirical Diary and Almanac of Samuel Marchbanks, and his three early novels, as well as numerous critical essays. He was teaching part-time at the University of Toronto, uh, at Trinity College at the University of Toronto, a connection that he was to maintain after assuming his role as master. He would also teach in the Drama Center, one of the many collaborative graduate programs that developed at the University of Toronto in these days. During his years at Mas as master of Massey College, Davies would achieve international renown for the novels Fifth Business, The Manticore, and World of Wonders, collectively referred to as the Deptford Trilogy. After his retirement, he maintained an office at the college where he completed his later novels, Rebel Angels, What's Bred in the Bone, The Liar of Orpheus, known as the Cornish Trilogy, Murder and Walking Spirits, and The Cunning Man, which was his final work. Um, he was actually working on a third novel at the time of his death in December 1995. It was Davies far more than Vincent Massey who determined the course the library would take, particularly the development of the Massey College Press. This is curious in many ways as Vincent paid so much attention to the details of the building and the furnishings. There was a national competition for the building with Vancouver artist Ron Tom winning the commission. All of the lettering, Graphic designs, as well as stationery and brochures, were overseen by graphic designer Alan Fleming. The silver, furniture, lamps, and even the handcrafted pottery ashtrays received Massey's attention. But the library, as originally planned, was to be a spacious, well-appointed reading area that contained books and journals for recreational reading, rather like a library in a gentleman's club. This room was constructed on the ground floor and is adjacent to the common room of the college. We refer to it as the upper library, the real library as we like to think of it, known as the lower library because of its basement location, housed a reference collection on its open shelves and the special collections behind locked doors. Initially, the reference collection attempted to cover all of the disciplines of all of the potential graduate students we might have, but it quickly became apparent that subscriptions to journals like chemical abstracts and physics abstracts and similar works were impossible to maintain, and those subscriptions were allowed to lapse after a couple of years. It was the lower library that was formerly named the Robertson Davies Library on the occasion of his retirement in 1981, but I am getting ahead of myself. The first step for Davies was finding a librarian, which he did by shanghaiing Douglas Lockheed from his position as librarian at the newly established York University. Legend has it that they sat next to each other at a formal dinner 
and before the evening was over, Davies had accomplished his task. Lockheed was a poet and scholar of Canadian literature. He had also been a librarian at Dalhousie University and before he had come to York University. As the college was never flush for funds, his appointment as librarian was nominally a part-time one. He also became a professor of English at Toronto and taught courses in the history of books and printing in the Faculty of Library Science, as it was then known. These courses were taught in the bibliography room, which housed a growing bibliographical press operation and collections of books on the subject. I should explain that there is a long tradition of teaching bibliography as well as editorial projects at the University of Toronto. Within the English department, at the master's degree level, students are required to take a Bibliography I course, which combines elements of research methodology and an introduction to bibliography, editing, and more recently, book history. The doctoral level course, referred to as Bibliography II, is also required, and it's divided by chronological periods and includes paleography and codicology for the earlier periods, um, a study of, of um, handwriting for later periods as well, and um, an introduction to editorial practices for the appropriate periods. Within the Faculty of Library Science, a year-long course in bibliography and textual criticism was introduced by Richard Landon in the 1980s, who also taught a course in rare books and manuscripts. When Patricia Fleming joined the Faculty of Library Science, she took over the bibliography course. Richard still teaches the rare books course. Both Richard and I have taught Bibliography I in the English department, and he has taught Bibliography II. When the bibliographical press at Massey College got underway, Lockheed had a full-time printing assistant supported by the English department. The position was filled by doctoral students who assisted in the instruction in printing. The classes at the master's level usually are large, so hands-on work in composition and imposition was somewhat limited. However, as Lockheed wrote in a 1971 article on bibliographical presses for the journal Scholarly Publishing, every class of students using the room has been involved in the actual printing of broadsides or pamphlets, and the great majority have not only seen but operated a hand press for the first time. With smaller classes at the doctoral level, the students were able to be involved in every stage of the production of these keepsakes. As I mentioned earlier, the Massey College Press owed its inception to Davies, who felt it would be useful to have a press to, keep, to print keepsakes for various college functions and to give the inquisitive and imaginative fellow the opportunity to compose, in type that is, in metal type, and print his literary effusions. Davies also approved of the use of the press for teaching purposes. In the early years, a fully equipped papermaking room was established but this did not endure for very long because problems of ventilation led to molds of a different sort. We still do have the paper molds, one for laid and one for mold paper, with Massey's bullhead as its watermark. They were made for us by T. Ami and Son. The size of them is roughly uh, about a fool's cap sheet. One of the more amusing documents relating to the establishment of the press is a letter of April 30, 1964, from the Deputy Minister of Revenue, Customs, and Excise, today known as Canada Customs and Revenue Agency. In this letter, 
the press was exempted from the sales and import taxes for any printing equipment, paper, binding supplies that related to the operation of the press. It was also exempted, the products of the press, of the press were also exempted uh, because they were not, not considered to be part of um, a, an advertising um, production, and therefore they didn't have to pay what was a, a manufacturer's tax. Alas, when the federal goods and services tax legislation was passed in 1990, such exemptions went by the wayside. The first printing press acquired by the college was an improved Albion manufactured by T. Matthews in London in 1870. Its platen measures 18 by 12 inches. It was purchased for $200 in 1963 from Carl Dare, who had bought it from the Chiswick Press in 1959 to establish his own imprint, the Orchard Press. A graphic designer who's something of an icon in the Canadian scene, Dare had operated his own design firms in Montreal and later in Toronto, and had taught at various schools of art and design. He wrote and designed a series of small monographs on aspects of typographical design for the E.B. Eddy Company and the West Virginia Paper Company. He was the author of Design with Type, the fir first published in New York in 1952, a revised and considerably expanded edition published by the University of Toronto Press, appeared in 1967. Dare's interest in type design led him to spend a year in the Netherlands at the Anschede Foundry in 1956-7, supported by a fellowship from the Royal Society of Canada. He eventually designed the typeface Cartier, the first Canadian Roman in italic face, which, would, which was produced in 1967 as a film face to mark the centenary of Confederation. Lockheed had met Dare during his, his years at York University because Dare did a lot of the design work for the, the printed material for York. And the men shared an interest in letter forms and designs, and there is a bit of correspondence that survives uh, between them. Lockheed was, because of his close uh, friendship with Dare, was asked to write a foreword when the first proof of Cartier was produced in 1967. To go back to 63, when we acquired the press and related equipment, uh, which was immediately put to use, um, a few years after that, Dare offered the college his collection of some 200 incunable leaves at, do at $5 per leaf, an offer which Lockheed accepted. Negotiations with the college were underway for the sale and gift of his personal library on typography when Dare died suddenly from a heart attack on September 28, 1967, on his way back from New York. He had given a Paul A. Bennett Memorial Lecture the previous evening. Fortunately, the college did receive his library, what survives of his papers, which included the designs of Cartier, and type molds and other equipment from his year at Anschede. The, the poster that announced um, this lecture has in the background, and you can also very faintly see it in the background of this little brochure, um, the, the painting that's in the background is of Carl Dare. You can't see it quite so well in this, but you can see it better in the poster. Once the college's interest in older printing equipment was known, presses seemed to come from everywhere. An 1852 Albion table press manufactured by Hopkins and Cope in London, was transferred from the University of Toronto Press. It had formerly been in use at the Edinburgh firm of Thomas Nelson and Sons, 
and had been presented to the University of Toronto Press by newspaper magnate Roy Thompson in 1963. Its platen measures just under 15 by 9 inches. Our largest press, a Washington, was deposited on permanent loan by the firm of Sidney R. Stone, then a local distributor of printing equipment. Its platen is roughly 36 by 24, and it required a feat of mechanical engineering and many men to maneuver it down the main staircase and into the bibliography room. The most expensive press we acquired was the Columbian, illustrated on the poster for this lecture. It was manufactured by D&G Greek of, of Edinburgh, probably about the mid-19th century. It doesn't have a date on it. It has a platen size of 19 by 15 inches and had previously been owned by the firm of Clement and Grimms in Durham. We purchased it in 1971 from a Mr. John McCain, a Canadian stu student pursuing a degree in literature at Newcastle. The correspondence between Lockheed and, and Mr. McCain is quite interesting because Lockheed had, the, the word had gone out that he was looking for a Colombian, and he receives a letter from this gentleman who's obviously a printing enthusiast and describes the press in great detail. And as the letters go back and forth and Lockheed said, I'm interested in it, McCain proposed that he didn't know what sort of price to put on it, so he suggested that the price should be approximately the amount a single student pays for tuition for one year at Massey College. Well, tuition really isn't what they pay at Massey College. They pay for their room and board. And Lockheed wrote back saying that room and board at Massey College was $1,000. This is 1971. And that the university fees for the graduate students was $500. So he suggested a compromise between those two figures and offered $750. He also agreed to pay the shipping costs, which amounted to 59 pounds and one shilling, as well and creating costs, which were 19 pounds, seven shillings, and four pence. A few years later, through the good offices of Roy Gurney of the University of Toronto Press, we received an 1848 Imperial Press made by J. J. Cope and J. Sherwin of London. Its platen is 22 by 16 inches. Gurney had taken this press off the hands of a Boy Scout troop who preferred the delights of canoeing in Algonquin Park to printing in the basement of the Riverdale Presbyterian Church in Toronto. He apparently said to them that you know, he'd pay them $100, or if they would deliver it, he'd pay them $125. He'd no sooner gotten home than there was a knock on the door, and there was the press. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but it seemed that way to him. In addition to these iron hand presses, we have a pearl treadle press, a Vandercook proof press number one, a small tabletop hoe galley press, and two table platen presses, an official press and an excelsior press. Together with Roy Gurney and Harold Krushenka, who was also at the University of Toronto Press, Jerry Moses, who was head of design of the design department for Imperial Oil, Peter Dorn, who had a distinguished career at the Queen's University Press, and several other enthusiasts, Lockheed would spend the weekends in search of type, frames, and cases from old printing houses and suppliers in and around Toronto. It was also possible to buy new type in Toronto at that time, as the design firm of Cooper and Beatty was still casting a wide range of monotype typefaces. Um, this was really in Cooper and Beatty's heyday, and one of the gifts that was presented to the Book Arts Press when it arrived here in 1992, Terry, uh, was a copy of the Black Book. This was a, a, a book of type specimens that was at that time being issued by Cooper and Beatty. 
So if you ever want to have a look at the range of typefaces they still had available at that time, you can consult the Black Book here. One of our greatest benefactors, though, was, was Roy Gurney, who had been amassing a personal collection of wood and metal type, as well as a library on the subject. When he retired for health reasons in 1974, he gave the college his collections. Fortunately, his prognosis was not as dire as the doctors had predicted. He continued his interest in printing history and began producing a number of miniature books. In 1997, he visited the college, and we were talking about presses and his miniature books, and he, was, he wanted to try to build a miniature press, and he had heard of, of the book on the common press that Clint Sisson and Elizabeth Harris had done. So I lent him our copy. We normally don't circulate books, but he was, this was an exceptional situation. And he actually constructed five miniature presses based upon those diagrams and instructions. We have one of them now at Massey College. We also have a slightly larger model that had been constructed by a student in the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology. Um, it's uh, considerably larger than the miniature one that Roy Gurney made. Excuse me. The books from Dare's and Gurney's libraries complemented the special collections in bibliography and the history of the book that Lockheed saw as a natural complement to the hands-on work of a bibliographical press. When his students had questions about printing methods, they were able to consult one of the many printer's manuals on the shelves in the special collections just beyond the press room. Unfortunately, we do not own Moxon, and it's an original edition. We have the uh, Carter and uh, Davis edited edition of it. But we do have a number of later printer's manuals. And we also have a number of type specimens. Gurney's collection contained a number of specimens from the 18th century, including specimen sheets issued by Caslin, Baskerville, Fry, and Wilson, as well as a number of, of 19th century specimens as well. Gurney had more of a historical interest in the subject, whereas Dare's library was the working library of someone who was doing this for his living. In addition to books on the history of printing, papermaking, binding, and bibliography, Lockheed stretched his meager budget to provide good examples of printing from every period. Robertson Davies did his bid as well, purchasing for the library a few choice Kelmick Scott press books with original drawings laid in, which had been part of the Sidney Cockerell Library. They weren't bought at the Cockerell sale, they were bought a few years later, but Davies thought it would be appropriate that we have something like that. Both men knew that a small college library could not, a small college could not support a large research library which, with range and diversity. That was the role of the university's Department of Special Collections, which was about to be transformed into the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. Lockheed did work closely with members of the main library's book selection department, and he often went on buying trips with David Esplin, the powerful head of that department. Esplin had a mandate in the funding to, to support it to build research collections that would support new graduate programs of the university. Both Esplin and Lockheed bought regularly from the firm of, of Colgan Duval and Colin, Colin Hamilton. It was through them that Lockheed learned in 1969 of the availability of Rory McLean's collection of Victorian books. It was an opportunity to develop a particular direction for the library at Massey College. 
In the years following World War II, Rory MacLean had established himself as a leading figure in British typography, designing books and magazines, and lecturing, teaching, and writing on various aspects of the subject. At the time that Lockheed met him, MacLean had written or edited the books on George Cruikshank, Modern Book Design, The Wooden Gravings of Joan Hassel, Victorian Book Design and Color Printing, The Reminiscences of Edmund Evans, he also had translated Jean Chicoult's Asymmetric Typography. McLean went on to produce several more books on 19th century book design, including an enlarged new edition of Victorian book design and color printing, Victorian Publishers' Bindings in Cloth and Leather, Joseph Cundell Victorian Printer, Victorian Publishers' Book Bindings in Paper, and Benjamin Fawcett Color Printer. The last work was done in collaboration with his wife, Antonia. He also produced books on modern design. Uh, he was quite prolific, is quite prolific. He's still with us. Among his works on contemporary design were modern design, uh, Jean Chacolte, typographer, and the Thames and Hudson Manual of Typography, which is um, still in print. Maclean's collecting of Victorian books, um, I should add, if, if you don't know, that uh, an autobiography um, has recently been published by Oak Knoll Press, and it is quite an entertaining book. A little frustrating at times, but entertaining. McLean's collecting of Victorian books began with the purchase of Henry Shaw's Dresses and Decorations of the Middle Ages, printed in colors by Charles Whittingham and published by William Pickering in 1840. The quality of the printing and, and the illustrations led McLean to wander further. With some exceptions, notably works of, of travel and typography, the illustrated and color-printed books of the Victorian era, this is in um, post-World War II period that we're talking about now, these books were still reasonably priced and in some cases were a real bargain. McLean began to collect them in earnest. His interest in color printing led him to major books illustrated with chromolithographs and color relief blocks, uh, both wood and metal, as well as some of the more commercial ventures including the illuminated gift books of Owen Jones and Henry Noah Humphreys, as well as the toy books of Walter Crane and Randolph Caldecott, the latter printed by Edmund Evans. McLean had amazing luck in some of his finds. He managed to acquire a copy of the first nine parts in their original printed gray wrappers of Owen Jones's Alhambra. The set had been presented by Jones to the Architectural Society, later the Institute of British Architects, but was cast off as a duplicate. McLean also had a large paper copy of the completed work. Now the parts, as it was issued, just had the plates as well as these printed wrappers. And um, within the parts, you can trace the growing number of subscribers to this publication. The text on the wrappers is quite interesting as it gives a sense of how the book was being marketed. A comparison of the plates between those in the parts and those in the completing work, completed work also is interesting as there are variations in the colors and the tones. It leads one to, to uh, feel that it's always helpful to have more than one copy of a book around. Even more remarkable was the large paper copy from the Earl of Ellesmere's library of William John Stannard, The Art Exemplar a book published in, in 1859. This was a book that McLean had found, he says, in a small bookshop in South Kensington. It is a large book. 
The work attempts to describe and illustrate every known printing process or method of illustration up to the time of 1859, but it was produced in only 10 copies, four in this large size and six so-called smaller ones. One of the smaller ones is here at Virginia, purchased to mark the arrival of Jerry Bellinger and the Rare Book School program in 1992. Equally stunning were McLean's copies of William Savage's Practical Hints on Decorative Printing, a large paper copy in mint condition, and Owen Jones' Grammar of Ornament, a copy from the library of the Duke of Devonshire. Then there were the special large paper copies of the 1851 Great Exhibition catalogs and reports to the Crown, illustrated with photographs. These sets were done for presentation, and McLean's copy had belonged to Sir Charles Barry, a member of the organizing committee. The collection on offer to Massey College contained almost all the books by architect and ornamental designer Owen Jones, whose uses of chromolithography have been mentioned briefly above. Jones had set up his own press to produce the Alhambra, but for many of his later books, he relied on the skills of the firm of Day and Son, and almost all of the books um, that they printed are represented uh, in, in, um, in the collection. The work of color printers like George Baxter, the Leighton Brothers, Edmund Evans, Joseph Kronheim, the Visitelli Brothers, Benjamin Fawcett, and others was well documented in the collection. Most of these books survived in their original publisher's bindings, in cloth, in paper, the papier-mâché bindings that uh, Jones and, and Noel Humphreys liked to use, the um, relievo embossed leather bindings that Jones used for many of his books. And this was an aspect that McLean continued to pursue as well. He included examples, he accumulated examples of the design work of John Layton, William Harry Rogers, Albert Henry Warren, Robert Dudley, John Slay, and others, and is really instrumental for the study, uh, for encouraging the study of these um, designers and their impact upon uh, the, the covers, the decorated covers. Most of McLean's books are English books. Uh, there are a few American books in the collection, but the vast bulk of them are English. And so the, um, the cloth bindings are, are similar in some respects, but, but somewhat different from what was happening in um, North America. McLean did not neglect the antiquary Henry Shaw, whose dresses and decorations of the Middle Ages had provided the impetus to collect Victorian books. He had acquired large and small paper copies of all of Shaw's books, as well as some of them in parts with their original printed wrappers. Also in, in this sort of subgroup of the collection was an original drawing for a plate in Shaw's Specimens of Ancient Furniture and a prospectus for his Encyclopedia of Ornament. Shaw's books are fascinating in many ways. He used every graphic medium and every advance in printing technology to document aspects of medieval and Renaissance decorative arts. He was trained as an architectural draftsman, and he produced the plates for most of the books themselves. Most of the plates um, are, are done using various combinations of uh, intaglio process, um, and often they are hand-colored as well. But with several of the books, particularly dresses and decorations of the Middle Ages, he actually um, involved the, uh, Charles Whittingham in producing these magnificent um, color-printed initials and ornaments on the text pages, and about six of the 90 plates are printed in colors as well. 
um, using relief blocks. Although the books were published by Pickering, there is evidence from the Chiswick Press ledgers that Shaw paid the production costs himself, and there was also a separate auction sale of Shaw's books um, and the copyrights, which is an indication that he actually um, was the person responsible for paying for them um, and not Pickering. McLean also had a category for books on printing and design, which included the first English edition of Seinenfelder's Complete Course of Lithography, Charles Joseph Holmendel's The Art of Drawing on Stone, and early examples of the use of lithography for book illustration, including a magnificent copy of John Thomas Smith's Antiquities of Westminster, bound in a splendid cathedral binding. It is said to have one of the earliest uses of lithography. I, I won't say it is the earliest, but <laughs> with an expert in the room here. Um, the collection was tempting. I mean, these are just some of the high spots of it. And it was extremely attempting to Lockheed, but there were the practical matters of finding the money. Through the cooperative efforts of Massey College, the University of Toronto Library, and the McLean, not related to Rory, this is a Toronto Foundation and Laidlaw Foundations, the funding was pieced together. An agreement was reached with McLean that payments would be spread over three years, with the first installment to be made in 1970. The price for the collection and I, and I mention this because uh, it's, it's hard to make comparisons. Um, but the price for the collection at that time was 35,000 pounds, which translated roughly to 91 Canadian dollars. That's when the Canadian dollar meant something, too. This may be, seem to be expensive, and it must have seemed expensive then. But I'm sure that if the copy, our copy of the art exemplar alone were to come up to the market, it would bring that much money today. It would be almost impossible to put this collection together with the kinds of examples that McLean was able to acquire. McLean also offered his services to Massey College as a sort of scout for future acquisitions. We did acquire some additional material for the collection in this way, but the arrangement had its problems and came to an end under Lockheed's successor. There were additional reasons for the college to be a bit annoyed with McLean, in neither the revised edition of Victorian book design and color printing, nor in Victor Victorian publishers' book bindings in cloth and leather, was there any mention made of the collection being at Massey College. There were some sharpish letters that went back and forth, and in his later books that related to the collection, we were fully acknowledged. Lockheed's tenure as librarian came to an end in 1975 when he was offered the Davidson Chair of Canadian Studies at Mount Allison University in Sackville, New Brunswick. He had enjoyed his work at Massey College, but the demand on his time from his teaching schedule and the full-time nature of his part-time job as librarian had begun to wear. The fact that his wife was originally from the Maritimes argued in favor of the move as well. Although his departure was a great loss to Massey College, it was beneficial for Lockheed as he had more time to pursue his research in poetry. Um, just about two, he has come back to the college quite regularly and, and just two years ago at our sort of annual Christmas event, our Christmas gaudy, uh, Lockheed was, was honored by the college. In fact, the tribute was read and written by Richard Landon. Lockheed was succeeded as librarian by Desmond Neal, who had been at the Bodleian Library. As the librarian was, his position was still part-time, Neal also had an appointment in the English department where he taught Bibliography One. He also took over Lockheed's History of Books and Printing course in the School of Library Science. 
But the classes, instead of being taught in the bibliography room, were now being taught in a new seminar room, which had been fitted out with locked bookcases to house the McLean collection. The students were still required to attend a demonstration of the printing presses, but this was done outside of class time, and it really wasn't the same as actually having the classes in that room. The bibliographical laboratory was still there, but only the most persistent were able to use it. The fact that funding for the printing assistant had been cut from full-time to a part-half-time position didn't help matters either. Neil also had taken in extraneous equipment, including a huge cast-iron guillotine, which made it difficult to bring classes of any size into the room. You could barely get the door open, and you walked into this thing. It was just there. Um, the, often, the only glimpse that students had of the presses was because they had to go into that room to use the photocopier, which was where it was locked up as well. And, of course, Neil had to be present to unlock the door to let them go in and use the photocopier and make certain that they came back out again. He used to record whether it was long paper, or large paper, you know, 8.5 by 14 or 8.5 by 11. The 8.5 by 14 was a little bit more expensive. As the years went on, some of the members of the college began to question the purpose of the presses and even of the library. But Davies, though retired as master, still had an office at the college, and he still cared. It was during the mastership of Ann Saddlemeyer from 1988 to 1995, between Ann Saddlemeyer and Davies, um, a member of the faculty of um, computer science, Patterson Hume was master. And Ann Saddlemeyer, who was one of the first women to be elected a senior fellow of the college, was, was our first and only women master. An Anglo-Irish scholar, Saddlemeyer was a member of the English department and also taught in the Drama Center. As I said, she was one of the first women elected to the senior fellowship, and she was very sensitive to the, the problem that the college now had. Here we had a library named after our founding master, a very distinguished man, and, and some of the college community were really questioning the, the validity of it. When Neil stepped down from his duties in 19, January 1991, I was approached to conduct a survey of the library and its collections and to make some recommendations for its future. The subtext was, it has to have a future, and therefore the recommendations had to be positive ones. My report was accepted by the corporation, and work began in earnest on July 1st, 1991. Actually, July 1st is a holiday in Canada, so, but it began in July of 91. My appointment is still nominally a part-time one. And initially, um, I did not have an appointment with the English department, although I do have one now. In retrospect, the past 10 years have uh, been rather daunting. There's much work that still remains to be done. But we're getting there. The bibliographical collections, the collections of books, had been scattered in three or four different locations. The cataloging was minimal and very little of it was in machine-readable form. Once these books were reorganized into a single location, the cataloging into the University of Toronto's database was begun, and I'm pleased to say that the bulk of this particular collection has now been cataloged and is accessible. With the McLean books, the only catalog records were the sheets that McLean himself had provided. 
These have been useful to us as we are now creating new records with access points for color printers, illustrators, binders, and other things that seem appropriate. We are using the various rare books and manuscripts, thesauri, and, and, and other thesauri that, in order to create access to types of bindings, binders tickets, illustration techniques, and provenance information. Unfortunately, the, the binding thesauri, I think, has its limitations for the 19th century, and there are many terms that you wish, like, for example, relievo binding. You can't use that, so you have to use other categories that they use. But the advantage to these 655 terms is that they are searchable as if they were a subject, and you can then, um, uh, part of the way it's set up, you put the, the year of publication so that you can go through and, and look for all of the bindings, gold block bindings, that you might have for, say, 1860. In our efforts to identify color printers and wood engravers, lithographers and designers, binders and whoever else, we've relied heavily on the work of Jeffrey Wakeman, Rodney Engen, Michael Twyman, Douglas Ball, Morris Packard, and many others. Cataloging these books now has been made tremendously easier because there's been so much work done in the 19th century. Um, and there is much, much more work to be done, but we've been able to identify people in a much better fashion thanks to these directories. Although the presses were in decent condition, the distribution case was full of galley trays with jobs that had been left many years before. Unfortunately, sometimes the ink hadn't been cleaned very well either, and it meant that the type, um, in some cases, just had to be thrown away. While it is rewarding to, to compose and print your effusions, the work of distributing type is less satisfying. Much of the type, particularly the wood type, still had to be cleaned and sorted. Lockheed never really had the time or staff to do this. They just accumulated as much type as they could. So in the early days of our work, uh, we were just simply trying to figure out what was there and how best to get it into a workable state. In those early days, one of our most interested observers was Robertson Davies, who would poke his head inside the door of the bibliography room and smile. Uh, he also still had a key to that room, and I, there was evidence exhibition of that um, from that collection at the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Library. This is a catalog of that exhibition. Davies was pleased with the, with the result, although he felt that I was a bit too generous with McLean whom he still considered a bit of a scoundrel. The exhibition traveled to the National Library of Canada in the following year. Reviving interest in the printing presses was not very difficult. Throughout even the thinnest of times, we still did some keepsakes for college events. And while we never did cease to do printing demonstrations for the classes in bibliography, the involvement of the students in the actual press work had diminished to next to nothing. The sessions were, were an hour or so in length. Um, they were done outside of the class time, um, although they were obligatory. So the students were meant to have signed up and come to these sessions, but you never had 100% attendance. We've changed that. The sessions are now being held during class time, which gives me, I'm now the instructor, we don't have a printing assistant, although one member of my staff uh, does have some responsibility for the presses. The sessions are now being held during class time, which gives me two hours to discuss papermaking, typefounding, composition, imposition, and press work, 
And maybe, if there's a bit of time where somebody asks a question, we can talk briefly about illustration. I've done the composition for several of the keepsakes in the past few years, and this one staff member does the press work for the inner form. We make the students perfect the sheet. They then get to keep their own sheet that they've perfected, and I show them how to fold and sew it. We've mostly done quarto um, format, but last year was our first octavo, a very small octavo, but an octavo nonetheless. As the, world has got, as the word has gotten around, I've had requests from uh, faculty in other departments, both graduate and undergraduate, for classes for, in the history of science and technology, linguistics, French literature, and of course English. I've had a few high school classes as well, and there, one of them who's come back um, several years in a row now was is someone who's teaching English literature in a French immersion school that's all of the courses are taught in French except for particular literature courses. And he had done an MA at U of T and remembered the press room. So he phoned me and asked if he could bring a class of, of his students. These would have been grade 11 or grade 12. They were just so excited. And he brought them at a point when they were doing uh, Elizabethan literature. So he and the fact that they could sort of relate these things to things that he'd been talking about in the past was just absolutely wonderful. The development of the Toronto Center for the Book at the University of Toronto and the establishment of the collaborative program in book history and print culture have, have provided us with some new audiences. The Toronto Center for the Book sponsors six lectures a year at various sites on campus. Each year, one session is a colloquium held at Massey College at which three graduate students give presentations. This has been followed by a printing demonstration and a reception. At the first of these, it was really quite delightful to watch 18th century historian John Beattie, who is um, now retired, but still very active in his research. He had never had the opportunity to pull the bar of the press. And he then compared his impression with one that had been done by one of our professionals and was much disappointed in his own work. The collaborative program is a degree program at the master's and doctoral level. The participating units within the University of Toronto are the Department of English, the Faculty of Information Studies, as it is now called, the Department of French Language and Literature, the Centers for Comparative Literature and Medieval Studies, and the Institute for the History and Philosophy of Science and Technology. It is based at Massey College. I have brought some brochures for both the library and the collaborative program, and they're on the table at the back. Um, I probably don't have enough, but feel free to take them. The students have to be accepted into the participating units first before they can apply to the collaborative program, and the degree that they receive is from their home unit with an area of specialization in book history and print culture. But, but the courses that we are recommending that they take um, as they pursue their degrees and the courses that we are requiring from them are courses that try to show the interdisciplinary nature of book studies as they have evolved. We admitted our first group of students in the 2000-2001 academic year. We had 10 students, uh, three of whom were doctoral, one English and two information studies. And we have a promising group coming in the next year. As these classes are smaller in size, there will be greater potential for using the presses. We've also been able to add to the collections thanks to an endowment fund that was established at the time that Davies retired in 1981. The naming of the library was part of the fundraising campaign. 
we began to draw upon the interest from this endowment for acquisitions in 1990. I am attempting to build on the strengths of the collections, purchasing printer's manuals, 19th century specimen books, examples of early lithography and color printing, copies of works in original parts, uh, variants of books already in the McLean collection, and so forth. Uh, one of the things that I have found to be quite interesting is the um, crossing the seas. There are copies of English works that have ended up with a um, canceled title leaf, and they're in the same publisher's bindings as the English edition with signed by John Layton or whatever. And it's really interesting to see what's going back and forth across the borders. I'm also interested as well when we have found copies that have booksellers, contemporary booksellers labels of the states or in Canada, which is showing something about the distribution of them. Shortly after my arrival in Toronto, or, or, my arrival in Toronto was 1990, my arrival at Massey in 1991, I was offered a library of 19th century publisher's bindings that had been put together by Fiona Jardine, later Lowry, who was a close friend and associate of Rory McLean's. They were very close friends. Some of the inscriptions are very tender indeed. We happened to be going to London um, shortly after I'd gotten uh, a letter from Mags, who was handling the sale of the collection. So I agreed to stop in and have a look at it. They had wanted to just sell it as a collection. Um, some of the books had had a bit of water damage to them, and so they didn't really want to, and I think they just didn't want to go to the expense of cataloging it individually. Um, I had done a little bit of preliminary checking because many of her books were used as illustrations in the Victorian bookbinding uh, in cloth and leather. So I knew that there were things that we didn't have in the collection, and I knew that there was going to be some duplication. I felt that it was worth it. There was just an instinctive reaction to it that made me say, we've got to do this. I had to do it, however, by splitting the payment in two years. But fortunately, all the books came at once, so it gave me the opportunity of sorting them and sorting them against the McLean books. As we did this, I became quickly aware of the advantages of comparing what on the surface appeared to seem to be multiple copies. At the very least, there were binding variants, both in color and in, uh, in the color of the cloth and in the designs of the bindings. There was publication evidence on the bindings that appeared nowhere else in the book. There were new editions of a title showing the progressive uses of binding dyes. I could go on. It just seems like when you bring more and more copies of something together, you, ma you manage to see things, pieces of the puzzle, fall into place that you can't find with just one copy of them. And it also, I hope, will help us to understand a little bit more about uh, trends in publishing and distributing. In addition, we have uh, acquired what survives of the uh, papers of, of Alan Fleming. Um, unfortunately, it's not a complete archive, but because of his, early, of his early relationship with the college, and he also in his later years worked at the University of Toronto Press, uh, it seemed an appropriate place for the papers to go. And I have managed to pick up some early ephemeral designs of the commercial work that Carl Dare had done. So we fill in bits and pieces. The bibliographical press at Massey College began in the traditions of R.B. McCurrow, W.W. Gregg, and Fredson Bowers, tempered a bit with the teachings of Herbert Davis, Philip Gaskell, and Don McKenzie. We've taken a lesson from Tom Tansell as well on the importance of the book as artifact. 
With the development of the collaborative program in book history and print culture, we are building upon the strengths of the University of Toronto in the teaching of bibliography, textual criticism, and editing, and moving into interdisciplinary studies. The study of the book is alive and well in Toronto. And the ghost of Robertson Davies can rest easy knowing that the Massey College Library and the press are helping to make this happen. Thank you. Thank you.